So picture the following. An entrepreneur who grows a thriving company, arrives at work on time, maintains a squeaky clean driving record, pays her bills, saves money, has a ton of friends, reads, exercises, does all the things, and drinks a lot. Today, we focus on the phenomenon of the functional alcoholic, that largely unseen and untreated cross-section of the addiction population. Our guest discusses her ongoing struggle with alcohol, as well as the extreme social anxiety and daily panic attacks that arise whenever she attempts to get sober. Also, keep in mind that the program notes will contain resources for individuals in need of help, as well as for family members and friends of those who may be struggling with addiction. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. You don't have to use your real name. Do you want to use a fake name? No, it's fine. Really? Yeah. Okay. I'm not I'm not scared. You're not scared? <laughs> I'm <laughs> why not? Why not um, you scared? Well, I don't really hide from anybody and Can I paint a picture of you for the audience? Sure. So what's your name? Alicia. So Alicia recently got a haircut and it's <laughs> <laughs> it's the haircut that Pink has. Yeah, with the sort Alicia of the, Moore. The the swoop. Yeah, I would say that. It's short. Very short. <laughs> it's very short. And you've got a black halter top on and shorts and rainbow shoes. You look pretty burly like you could you Kick could knock a motherfucker out. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, you got the hoop. I was kind of going for that. <laughs> but I'm actually kind of nice. So, Well, you're like nice to that. me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, I'd say so. So what are we talking about today? I believe it's going to be in regards to someone in active addiction. Yes. So the reason I wanted to have you in today was because you are an active alcoholic, uh, so described, self-described. The reason I brought you in today is because I work with a lot of, I work in addiction a lot, and a lot of addiction stories are feel-good stories, like, oh, this person overcame this thing. And I'm tired of those stories. They're boring. Mm -hmm. I don't want them. I want to hear your story because you're in the middle of it. And the reason I want your story is because partially because I want to destigmatize the idea of everyone says, oh, you have a choice and kind of talk about the disease model a little bit and how ferocious this thing is. Right. And develop some empathy from people who may have family members who uh, are alcoholics or addicts and they're judging them and holding them in this position of like, well, why can't you pull it together? Right. Also, I, I do think that there is a victory in here for you, but it's, it's kind of paradoxical because I think you are doing really, really well. That's Even true. though you have not quite kicked it. I think I would be considered someone that is a high-functioning alcoholic. Very, very um, high-functioning alcoholic. You know, I'm able to do things within the real world and run a small business, pay all my bills and do everything on my own. Yet I'm still, I don't know how to put this in the nicest way possible, but dying on the inside uh, or killing myself at mm -hmm. the same time. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. I think we're all dying slowly, but I'm just kicking it into high gear with my alcoholism. So mm -hmm. let's start with some history. So okay. how long have you been drinking? I just turned 39. The first time I drank alcohol ever was I was probably around five. Okay. I know this sounds really funny, but it's a story I was told. My parents were moving out of my grandparents' house and apparently left a bunch of beers out and I picked them up and started drinking them because my dad kind of 
thought it was funny. He used to always take pictures with me sipping off the beer. So I started drinking them. Apparently I got drunk. So that was my first time getting drunk. And I had drinking on and off from, you know, from a young age through middle school, high school and stuff. But I really didn't get bad until I was probably 20, 21. I remember getting really drunk one night at a friend's house in San Francisco and I felt really good. It was like a moment of like, I can come out and be who I've always felt like I should be mm -hmm. and feel like I can talk to people. Mm -hmm. I'm not very outgoing. Let's just put it that way. I'm kind of an introvert, mm -hmm. not 100%, but like just, Close I just enough. don't like going out without the liquid courage. So, certainly, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, anyways, that night, I kind of, when I felt that drunk, I, that was it. It was a miracle. Yeah. It was kind of, it was like a feeling where I, I won't ever forget. Like it, my whole body felt like it went from my neck all the way down through my chest to my stomach, to my legs. Like I kind of started to feel like the alcohol going through my system. I don't know. I don't feel that anymore, but. So the, in, the, in those days you could feel like the liquid courage kind of going through your body. Like you were some kind of su superhero being born. <laughs> like you, you know, like He-Man got his sword or, or you know, like, yeah. <laughs> and suddenly he has the power. Yeah. Right. Like I was so, I was super shy at the party. I wasn't talking to anybody. And mm -hmm. then, you know, I started drinking. My friends were taking shots. And I just remember the feeling of the warmth coming over me. And mm. I just, it just felt. I, I let loose. I like had fun. I was able to talk to people. Mm -hmm. I was able to like talk to the person I was crushing on, Certainly. you know, so yeah. Let me ask you, and I ask a lot of uh, folks who struggle with chemical dependency this question. Do you think you were more addicted to the substance or what the substance did for you? I would say it's more for what the substance does for me. Being able to, I feel like I, I can get things out and talk better and make more sense and be... I don't know, more verbal of what I want and what I need, uh, as opposed to if I'm sober, I don't really speak up. I'm very shy, kind of timid, especially if I don't know someone, uh, you know, especially when it comes to my work, like I'm very, if I have to meet a new customer and sit down and talk with them, it's easier for me to have a couple of drinks in me to be able to talk to the person. Like, I just don't, I, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. It's it's makes sense to me. I mean, I, yeah. I would ask people to think about, you know, what would it be like if there was some part of your life where you were you were just dysfunctional, either physically, emotionally, or mentally, and suddenly you took your Adderall and you could think, or you could take your opiates and suddenly your pain would go away, and you could play a sport or drink and become socially active and just be a normal person, yeah, and feel whole. So, drugs and alcohol give us the artificial sense of wholeness and capability. It's um, like self medicating. Basically. For sure it is, yeah. People say, well, it's just a choice. You can just do it. It's like, well, you're asking this person to choose between a life in their minds. I'm not saying this is the reality. Let's say you're asking Alicia not to be able to be able to be comfortable in someone's presence ever and not talk to anybody ever and just be a- Hermit. A hermit. <laughs> do, you, do you practice being social without alcohol? I've done it before. I've been in and out of trying to be sober. Yeah. Uh, so I've definitely had moments where I'd, I have to be- sober and then i didn't have to go out sober right. i could have stayed in but i'm married and mm -hmm. um my wife is very social sure. and i can't just close down and not do anything mm -hmm. with my life i have to keep doing or yeah. keep going i should say but yeah i've tried it and i don't know i guess you can explain it in a way like i'm really fun and outgoing if i'm drinking mm -hmm. <laughs> and 
I'm not if I'm not. Like okay. I'm very quiet and shut down and I don't even know how to speak to someone sometimes. Yeah. When's um, the last time you had a drink? Today. What time? Mm, an hour ago. An hour ago? Mm. So it's 4.30 now. How much did you drink? Well, mm, hmm, good question. I don't keep track of my drinking. Okay. But um, if I were to guess, a little over a pint of hard liquor. An hour ago? No, not just in one hour. Oh. It's been throughout the day. Throughout the day. Yeah. Okay. It's not that much. Okay. Um, well, we'll, we'll talk about that me. in a second. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so I guess what I'm, I'm talking, was that in preparation of this interview or was that just because you were, you, it's just what you do on a Sunday? Uh, It's not just what I do on a Sunday. It's usually what I do daily. Okay. But I don't wake up and usually just wake up and say, I'm going to have some drinks right now. You know, mm -hmm. it's, this is what usually happens. I usually say to myself, today I'm not going to drink. Yes. I get up and I feel like shit or something, or mm -hmm. maybe I feel great. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, well, maybe I can drink a little bit today because I drank so much yesterday, I might need to kind of wean it down a little bit. Right. And then I start talking myself into, you know what, let's just do this another day and let's <laughs> quit another day. Right. Um, and then usually what happens from there, it's like a cycle, I wake up, around 3.30 or 4.30 in the morning, mm -hmm. major regret, thinking to myself, what the hell did I drink? Why did I drink so much? Mm -hmm. Said I wasn't gonna drink yesterday. I end up drinking like a half a bottle or a half a fifth to a whole bottle. Mm -hmm. uh, it depends on how the day is. Describe a fifth to people. It's basically a wine bottle of hard liquor. How many days a week do you drink a fifth of, of hard liquor a day, do you think, out of the week? I, I I don't do that often. That's on a really bad bad day. It's like it's if if it's on a really bad week, I could drink probably a half a gallon of tequila within like a three to four day period, mm -hmm. and then that's not including like drinking other things. I don't know. It's really hard because again, I don't really keep track. Certainly, and I'd rather not keep track. Let's go back to your history. How much were you drinking at your height? When do you think it peaked? Oh, most definitely now. Oh, this now. is the worst I've ever been with okay. drinking. Because all through the years, drinking's always been the fallback. It's always been what I've gone to, kind of like my safety net. Mm -hmm. Because I was doing other drugs. I did for a couple of years, I was, I was a cocaine addict. I was deep in it. It was all the time. I was doing bags of cocaine all night and then I would wake up in the morning to check and see if I had anything left. I would mm -hmm. have to go and get some more from my friends or my drug dealer. And I really, I really, I was kind of lost in that. And I, I've always had this thing where it's like a, I, I call it Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Hyde. Mm -hmm. Literally, I'm like back and forth. I'm like, shit, I have a problem. I need to get help. I need to do something about this. Mm -hmm. I'm, I feel super lost. And then there's moments where I'm like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. You have your shit together. You're paying your rent. Mm -hmm. You're paying all your bills. Now you own a company, you're going to work, you're keeping your jobs. Mm -hmm. Like I've never lost a job mm -hmm. from my addictions. Which is rare, by the way. It is very rare. Yeah, I've not heard of that at your level. I think I'm just also addicted to work. Working. Yeah. Well, I probably don't meet the people because the people that come to me or the people that I meet in treatment are the ones who have lost a lot, lost their jobs and stuff. So I think that the functional alcoholics and addicts of the world probably don't ever end up in treatment. And well, we'll which never is know. why I've explained to you, I've always had that feeling like I feel like I don't fit in with the people that I've gone to treatment with. How many times have you been to treatment? I've been to three inpatient. And how long were those treatment episodes? I went for 28 days 
with Sequoia mm -hmm. in Redwood City. Mm -hmm. I did Momentum in Palo Alto. I did a live-in kind of like sober community mm -hmm. slash inpatient treatment. And how many IOPs? Intensive outpatient. Okay, so I think I've done four. And for those of you who don't know what IOP is, intensive outpatient is basically like day camp. You go in, there's a, there's group therapy, and it's like a center where you have, there's learning and there's therapists and you get urinary analysis tests and they kind of keep track of you and then you go about your merry way around 3 p.m. And yeah. Yeah, it could be morning or evening. Yeah. And it's like three to four hours of three different groups. So what are the things that made you want to get treatment? I mean, is it just a sense of like, this is not good for me. I'm destroying my liver and my pancreas and I got to get, got to, I'm not, I'm dying inside and I'm eroding my, my I'm taking years off my life. Like what, uh, why did you want to get help? When I turned around 30, which was nine years ago, I started to experience my anxiety to start peaking again. Mm -hmm. Now, just to kind of give everybody insight on that, mm -hmm. I've had anxiety my in entire life since I was a child, since I can remember, like probably since I started walking. I don't know. And it's the everyday stress anxiety. It's Describe it. Okay, so we've got the everyday stress anxiety where people are like, oh my God, I can't pay my registration. Mm -hmm. What am I gonna do? Mm -hmm. Stressing out about it. Mine more so is, I can't really explain it because still to this day, I really don't know a whole lot of why or where it came from for me. Mm -hmm. I do think it's probably unprocessed trauma. Mm -hmm. Also dealing with a lot of maybe mental health issues that I just, mm -hmm. I haven't taken care of. So do you get like shallowness of breath, heart rate increases? Yes. So um, shallowness of breath, heart rate, feels like it's coming out of my chest. Mm -hmm. I feel like I can't take a full breath. Mm -hmm. I just can't, I can't breathe. Like right. I feel suffocated when there's nothing suffocating me. And how long do those things last? Um, it can last between 10 minutes to about a half hour for me. Okay, so you have a dual thing happening. Not only does alcohol help you with your social anxiety stuff, but it helps you with some really, really acute anxiety. Oh, horrible anxiety, yeah. 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 At the end of the day, I think my anxiety really is what started me numbing out mm -hmm. on any kind of drugs or alcohol. Right. So I'm really paying a picture here of somebody who is self-medicating. I want people to know in the world that, that addiction, it's just what it is. It's like she found a medication that worked. It bears a heavy price tag, but you can sort of get a sense of what Alicia is going through on a day-to-day -day basis. Have you had any success talking to psychiatrists about getting a medicated for your anxiety so you don't have to drink? Um, okay, so I have talked to a psychiatrist quite a few times and mm -hmm. just recently too. Mm -hmm. He did try to get me on medication. I, this is the thing. I have a really hard time trusting in doctors mm -hmm. because I've been misdiagnosed so many times mm -hmm. and put on so many different types of medications mm -hmm. that really messed me up. Mm -hmm. And so who knows you best? yourself mm -hmm. right as much as i i know that i don't always make the right decisions for myself mm -hmm. and maybe what i'm doing is killing myself i do know that because there's signs that tell me that and the pit of my stomach tells me what i'm doing in my life and the decisions i'm making in regards to alcohol are affecting me in a very negative way mm -hmm. however the other part of me is looks back on when I was misdiagnosed and given medication that really kind of sent me in a very dark depression. Oh. And I'm not saying all doctors are bad and I'm not saying that every doctor out there is gonna prescribe mm -hmm. the wrong thing for people. 
I don't want to discourage anybody from that. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that's been my experience, and so I'm scared. And you haven't tried any of the medications that the psychiatrist recommended? I've, I stopped, I'm going to say five years ago, mm-hmm. stopped taking medications five years ago, mm-hmm. and kind of went directly back to drinking okay. at that point. All right. At any rate, so I, I, I would encourage you to to talk to your psychiatrist about your anxiety with, with medications and perhaps try and, and see yeah. if he can or she can work something out with you where it's not quite so panic-inducing. I think I just have to take time getting into that. Mm-hmm. They can't just off the first time meeting me say, here's a script, you know, kind yeah. of thing. Okay. You know. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the environment that you have been combating over the past few years. One of the roadblocks, the, the largest roadblock to sobriety, in my opinion, besides one's relationship to oneself, is one's relationship to one's community right. and who is literally around you, your family, your spouse, your neighbors, your friends, where you work, who you see, who you talk to. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges in that environment? Yeah. Um it's funny. I mean, if we were to go back a little bit just to kind of talk about how I was raised and where I've been, <laughs> where I kind of come from. Um, my family, we've always had addictions kind of throughout the family. I've lost uncles, grandparents to their afflictions, which happens to be mostly alcohol, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so growing up, my parents always used to say, you have to be careful how much you drink. It runs in the family. Like alcoholism runs in the family. I kind of never really understood that. I was mm-hmm. always like, what does it matter that Uncle Charlie likes to drink? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not him. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a different person than him. And I just never got it as a child. I was just kind of like, whatever. And I remember he passed away when I was in sixth grade. That was my mom's brother. My mom was explaining to me why he passed away. And it was, you know liver failure, mm-hmm. kidney failure, basically his body failed him. And he passed away actually at my age now, which is weird to say, cause I, did, I haven't thought about that. And then my other uncle, which is my dad's side, passed away from the same thing. I think he ended up actually taking his life with drugs. And my grandfather on my mom's side drank himself to death. Um, she actually didn't see him since she was in second grade cause my grandma had kicked him out and said, don't come back until you are better, which mm-hmm. in those times, that's kind of the thing to do. Mm-hmm. Hey, you're drinking our life savings away. Get the f- fuck out, sorry, mm-hmm. <laughs> get the fuck out and come back when you have your shit together kind of thing. And he never did. Mm-hmm. He basically just drank himself into oblivion and ended up dying from causing a hole in his artery. I don't know, he bled to death through his throat. Yeah, that happens. I don't quite understand the science behind it. I don't either. Yeah, they basically drown in their own blood. Yes, that's what happened. It's terrible. He he died in his sleep like that. So so anyways, my parents, wonderful, wonderful people, but they've just not made the best decisions in life. And so my parents have a lot of trauma Mm -hmm. and they've carried that into my life with my brother's life. And they drank through my younger years. I'm the oldest child. I have one younger brother. He's seven years younger than me. I became the built-in babysitter, basically. My parents would like to go party and we'd be with them. Mm -hmm. And I would be babysitting the kids in the house. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, my parents are downstairs with the other parents partying it up. Uh, You know, instances like going to the pool past the closing time where we would take the Red Rider wagon, mm-hmm. fill it up with wine, 
oh, boxes and you know like whatever they wanted and we'd go swimming on a school night mm -hmm. at midnight and and then we would come home and my dad would drive home i mean this is probably through my middle school years into my high school years so your family was pretty sloshy oh yeah they're they were drinkers they are drinkers they are 100 percent drinkers so that's kind of what I was trying to paint a picture of is mm -hmm. the fact that I grew up in a family that drinks. Mm -hmm. However, it would always be at the talk. Be careful how much you drink. <laughs> be careful this and that because you yeah. can go over. Well, it's already gone overboard. We're all overboard. We're so. all, we're, it, we're, the boat has left. We're in the, the water. Where are the sank. life jackets? Like, it's <laughs> the like, iceberg hit and the <laughs> boat has sank. So. <laughs> this is done. Uh, yeah, and I hate laughing about it because at the same time, I mean, my dad's the type of guy that uses humor to, you know, deflect. Mm -hmm. uh, but my parents are my friends and my drinking partners. So they were close by you and they would come over and drink all the time? Like you were just surrounded by that environment? It's weird not drinking around them. Let's just put it that way. Right. Is it how you guys relate? Yeah. So mom and dad come over, the whiskey or the whatever, the tequila comes out, and it's like, let's talk and let's be a Everything, family. Everything, whatever, whatever we have comes out. Oh, okay. it's it's in fact a good example is my dad just recently came down to have a surgical thing done, have something removed, mm -hmm. and he he's like, can I have the can I spend the night at your house? I said, of course. So my dad goes, well, good, we can have father daughter time, and I said, perfect. We're you know we'll have fun. And so it just so happened to be on the night that my wife was working because she also bartends mm -hmm. on the side. You know, she's a, a personal chef, but she bartends on the side. Sure. Kind of how you do it in the Bay Area. You have two jobs. So yeah. anyways, he comes down and I say, okay, you know, let's go out to dinner. And we start drinking and we're sitting at the bar and then we order dinner. We have a little bit to eat and we order more drinks. Then we end up getting more drinks. And then we go to the bar and then we start drinking more. And then we have... It was like nonstop. Like the two of us ended up being shit faced by the end of the right. night. We get home. My dad's like, okay, good night. You know, and it's like father daughter time. Yeah. And that's so, our father daughter time. So alcohol becomes a function of love. Oh, 100%. Because without alcohol, how can you love each other? Not like that because I know my father loves me mm -hmm. no matter what. I know, I know he loves me. I just don't think the two of us are very good at being sober and expressing that. So alcohol becomes an ex how to express love is, yes. is by drinking, yeah. um, which is reminiscent, of course, of your ability to socialize with others. But in your family, it's it's much more intense. Yeah, it opens us up, you yeah. know, and we're able to to be more. I don't know how to put it. When there's no alcohol involved, mm -hmm. we're all very quiet. Yeah, my parents are passive people. Sure, it's like this weird thing where we we actually don't open up as much unless there's alcohol involved right. i don't know so when someone says here stop drinking uh you're saying well what you're asking me to do is to hinder my ability to socialize with people generally uh, experience extreme sense of anxiety bordering on panic on a daily basis and basically not be able to relate to my family pretty much that's rough no that's it's 100 percent rough when i quit drinking for six months mm -hmm. I had a hard time relating or even being around my parents because it just was awkward. Is it like, don't you love us? Don't you, why, you know, how, how are we supposed to relate to you and share love and be a family if, if we don't have this lubrication here? That must be pretty awkward. It is, but they don't actually say it like that. It's more, it's their actions. It's not what they say to me. Like, 
if I'm not drinking, let's say I'm visiting my parents and mm-hmm. I come up and I say, you know, I'm taking I'm taking a couple of days off. I can't I, mm-hmm. I need to take some time off from drinking. It's more well, my parents will still drink regardless. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And and they'll get open. But mm-hmm. then it's kind of like um my dad will then kind of well, I'm not trying to throw my dad under the bus because I love him dearly. Mm-hmm. And I know that they experience just as much hurt and pain as I have in my life mm-hmm. and deal with their own pain the way they are dealing with. You know, they haven't had support and they just kind of, I, I just, I feel bad for them. But I know it's not their fault where they're at. So but. what actions do they take? Well, I, I, you know, my dad will make comments to me kind of like, and I'll say, well, I have to stop drinking because I feel like my anxiety's gotten really bad, and mm. and and I and like the alcohol's not helping it. And my dad will will say, well, you know what will fix that is a drink, <laughs> like you know things like that. Does your father know you struggle with alcoholism? I've told him. Mm-hmm. I've actually. It's concerning to me in a lot of ways with the amount of people that are the closest people to me in my life. Mm-hmm that know how much I struggle mm-hmm. as far as drinking goes and my anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I would think those people would at some point say, hey, we should probably do something more and support get, you and support you more mm-hmm. or support you in a way that you need to be supported. Another good example, um, I, for the past couple of years, and it's like clockwork, if I binge drink, really badly mm-hmm. during the day i'll wake up well it's normal for me to wake up around three thirty four, mm-hmm. you know and be like i want to break up with alcohol at that point mm-hmm. um but i'll wake up with like a metallic flavor in my mouth and i'll be like oh shit here we go again mm-hmm. i'll run to the bathroom spit and it's blood now i know it's coming from my stomach because it happens every time i lay down and mm-hmm. every time i wake up mm-hmm. in the morning so Before I had no idea where the hell it was coming from. I actually was like, well, might be my throat. Who knows? It's like maybe my grandfather. Maybe I'm gonna die like my grandfather. Maybe I'm burning a hole in my throat and and I'm about to go. And you'd think that would stop someone from drinking, but for some reason it hasn't stopped me. And that's another thing I've brought up to my parents. You know, I've told them. Hey, I spit up blood. You know, I want I want someone to relate to. Mm-hmm. I just want to know. Hey, are you have you spit up blood in your life? I never really get an answer. It's mm-hmm. more they divert. Mm-hmm. It's more like nobody really wants to acknowledge what's happening mm-hmm. because it's scary, right? Yeah. You you don't and you don't want to change your life mm-hmm. style. Yeah. So therefore, you kind of divert. My mom goes, well, maybe I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's something you know, that that's going to go away or something. I don't know. It, right. She never has anything really to say. Neither does my dad. So there's an intense amount of denial. It's not like, oh, she can have one drink. It's just sort of like there there might be this understanding that you have a problem that you've expressed grievance about alcohol. But at the same time, let's put that aside over here and let's just drink and talk and be father, daughter, mother, family, get along. And, and we're not going to talk about all that stuff over there. That's that's kind of upsetting. It actually it, it gets quiet. It gets quiet in the room, mm-hmm. and then everybody kind of, like I said, it it diverts. It's 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 very strange. That's we, fascinating. It's it's weird. It's I wish I could videotape it even show you because it's kind of like one of those moments where you're just like, well, yeah, I spit up blood again the other morning. Like, where do you think it's coming from? I can't get my head around that. 
and I'll be like, well, I, I, I binge drank yesterday and that's the only thing I could think that maybe have caused it. And it's the only time it really does happen. The amazing thing is they've also sort of made the stories of your, I guess your uncle and your grandfather into kind of these myths, like be careful about that. And there's these stories that kind of float around, but there's no acknowledgement that that may be happening to everybody in the room. Oh well, yeah. And that's amazing to me. I mean, that was when I was younger is when they would tell me those things. Now it's gone all out the window. I also yeah. think my grandma and my grandfather, they're the only two in the family that don't drink. Mm -hmm. And they're the only ones still alive in the family. Let's just put it that way. Right. Let me ask, what do you think life would be like if you were fully free from alcohol? Um, it would look like probably what it what I'm doing right now mm -hmm. without the alcohol because mm -hmm. I'm very driven. I'm 100% a functioning alcoholic. So mm -hmm. I you know, I own my own business. I pay my own bills. I do everything on my own. You know, I go out and I do things with my family and friends and stuff like that. So I think what would happen is that if I didn't have alcohol in my life, instead of being at a 10% availability Mm -hmm. in life and kind of not like I, I just kind of float through life right now. Mm -hmm. Whereas I would be at a hundred percent. Like I, I think I would be more, um, that's a hard one. To well, I guess I'm also okay. asking, would you not be anxious? Would you not be panicky? Would your relationships with your people around you fall apart? Like, what do you think would no. happen? No, I think at the end of the day, I, I think I'd still have my anxiety. My anxiety would always be there. Mm -hmm. I would just have to find another way to deal with it. I think it'd just be everything I do now, but I would be more aggressive mm -hmm. at making things better. Like my business, I would focus more on trying to get more revenue of how to grow instead of just being half-assed okay. there. Um, being able to like, I don't know, um, remember shit. Mm -hmm. Being yeah. able to remember what I'm doing in my days. The other day I was, I went to go meet a customer and I was completely shit faced. I honestly have never been like that. I like really was pissed at myself. Like I was on my way there and I was like, snap the fuck out of it. Mm -hmm. You have to talk to a customer right now. I remember getting there and I'm just like sitting there going, what in the hell did I just do? Um, I think that doesn't allow me to be the business owner I need to be to be there and mm -hmm. really hear what the customer needs and wants and mm -hmm. sell more product. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, I don't know it. For me, it's just being present, being yeah. more present. Okay. What's the part of you that wants to get sober? The part that is sick and tired of being, as they say in the rooms, sick and tired. I'm not feeling good all the time. The part of me that wants to get sober is the part that I know that my drinking isn't working for my anxiety mm -hmm. at all anymore. It was working for a period of time. Now, not even drinking helps it. Like mm -hmm. my heart still races. I still have panic attacks even mm -hmm. when I, I'm drinking. Um, it takes me more. What's the part of you that wants to keep drinking? The part of me that wants to keep drinking is the part that keeps me close to the people I love. And moving out of my comfort zone having to up my entire life into something new because I know that I can't submerge myself into the people that I'm around now. So I really have to, I would have to change everything. Not that I would have to do a, a geographical. That means move to it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying like move, but if I went to an inpatient somewhere and came back, mm -hmm. I couldn't 
just go back to my normal life. I would have to find new things to do, new hobbies. And and I couldn't be around my parents all the time. I couldn't be around people that were in my old community because right. they all drink. They all have an issue. I always tell people the hardest part of getting sober is it's the hard wiring of your life that you're in. In order to get sober, you have to you have to make a lot of really, really serious changes. What's the longest period of sobriety you've had since the age of 21? Um, I would say 2015. I spent Christmas in an inpatient program mm -hmm. in Palm Springs. And I ended up staying in Palm Springs until 2015, April, I think is when I returned home. Okay. So roughly six months. What was that like, that six months? It was a roller coaster. Yeah. I I was still on medication, but I wasn't on as much as I was prior to that mm -hmm. because they kind of took it down a notch, which was good. And the lady even said, the psychiatrist told me, she goes, what the hell do they have you on antipsychotics for? You are not weird. bipolar. <laughs> yeah. So she took me off those. Again, goes back to trust with the whole doctor's thing. Not all doctors are bad, but um, you just have to be careful who you talk to. Yeah. Um, and so I was on minimal medications like mm -hmm. an antidepressant and uh, stuff for cravings. Um, they weaned me off of benzodiazepines completely. So mm -hmm. I was just off of that. And I was kind of going through this roller coaster of feelings because I feel like all my emotions hit me at once getting sober. Mm -hmm. um, it was like things were catching up to me. So it, it went up and down a lot. It was some days I had really good high moments, like really just on top of the world. And then there was moments where I was like, what am I doing here? And I'm not feeling great and my anxiety's beyond yeah. and I couldn't breathe. So, I mean, just because you get sober doesn't mean everything stops, but it, it, it was good. It was a good experience. And I met a lot of really great people. Yeah. So what is it like to be in treatment? I don't know if this is the right way to put it. Put but it any way you want. It's like an adult camp, <laughs> kind of <laughs> like how you did as a child where you you show up at camp, you you have no idea who any of these people are. You're hella scared. Right. And I use hella because I'm in San Francisco and this is kind of what I do. And, and it's the haircut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the tie-dye shoes. And the tie-dye shoes. Um, so I show up and you know, you you you're like, oh, okay. I'm bunked with a bunch of adults. It's great. Mm -hmm. You know, you're put into this one room with maybe five other people, maybe mm -hmm. four. Right. Who knows if it depends on how big the room is. Right. And how much money you have. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. And how much money you have and if your insurance covers it or not. My my insurance happened to cover everything, which is perfect. I didn't even have to spend anything out of pocket. Have good insurance before you go to treatment. That's yes, all I have to say. Okay. Um and then during that time, I'm not going to say everything's all flowers and butterflies. Uh, it's hard. You're you're almost like a kid. You're throwing tantrums. You're doing shit that you never thought you would ever do because you're around other people that are emotionally unstable just like you because right. you're coming off of drugs or alcohol. Mm -hmm. You're doing things that you just like you would do as a kid. What, what kind of things are you doing? I don't want to go to class today. Screw you. Like, like the and, resident advisor yeah. comes and says, you need to go to class. You like, need to get up. You, you need to get out of bed. bed. Yeah. <laughs> and I want, I don't want to eat. I don't want to go to breakfast. Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're forcing you to eat because right. you have to be regulated with eating your medications. You right. have to go and take your medications at a certain time each day. You have to go to your classes each day. There's like, 
I can't remember, to be honest. It was like three, four classes in a day. And it was all different stuff about like either about addiction or groups where you talk about your trauma or, you know, it's like deep stuff. Yeah. Like you're getting deep. You're getting deep and they bring out the horses and you go pet a horse. and That's true. I did do that. Equine uh, therapy? Okay, that... I don't even want to say it because I'm almost I'm gonna, feeling like I'm going to embarrass myself. <laughs> You pet the horse, and the horse is supposed to heal you. And then, is it equine? No, you know, it's 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 fucking. I can't. It's I don't equine. Know. It's got to be equine therapy. Let's ask Google. <laughs> ask, Siri. Siri? ask Siri. Siri, Siri. I think it's got to be equine therapy. I feel like this needs to be right before you move forward with this. <laughs> well, I'm not right. Yeah, equine therapy. There it is. Okay, on okay. Google. Okay, right. known as equine assisted therapy, EAT or EAT. It's almost like 28 days with. Um, Sandra Bullock, you know, when she goes to equine. I, I haven't watched that in a while. Oh, goodness. I okay. Well, I don't want to, I don't, I can't. Anyway, <laughs> so you do the thing and you have the pool and then there's like massages and saunas and. Honestly, it's really, like you said, it's really all about how much money you have. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite is when these people, I used to work in these places and not as a therapist, I was like a tech kind of guy who ran around making sure that everybody got to group and they like complain like this place sucks and you oh, God. suck you would have hated me then what you would have hated me because i was like get the fuck out of we my room gone leave me alone. famously <laughs> um i remember once i had this i had this mentor cliff um who's amazing and he's this you know this guy from he's from like louisiana somewhere and this one woman was just she every time she would see me it was she would go volcanic and I'm like, Cliff, why does she hate me so much? She says, man, she don't hate you. When she see you, she just seeing her daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably cut that. <laughs> but anyway, so those those institutions were fun. That was a fun way to make a buck. Um, not very much bucks, but it was fun. But yeah, y'all y'all are crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, who isn't crazy when they're coming off their DOC? Yeah. So treatment. Yeah. So treatment's like, it's like summer camp for bad, adults that have been bad and uh <laughs> pretty much <laughs> that like to overindulge you yeah know, just a little anything. bit a little bit um so the way it kind of works in treatment traditionally is you go to inpatient that's like 28 days 30 days it really should be three months but who has time for that and then after that you usually go to iop and you're usually in a, a sober living environment like a house with the people did you ever do that you did that, right? Uh, sober, sober living, yes. You did sober living. Yes, I did. How was that? Well. Um, since you asked. Since you asked. I actually had good experience. Really? Um, not everybody does. I get that. Nope. I did a whole podcast on it. Honestly, I think it's because my sober living house <laughs> mm -hmm. was in the hills Oh. Uh, of Emerald Hills oh. in Redwood City, which happens to be a very nice neighborhood. Okay. Um, I think I just got lucky, to be honest, because I'm, I don't want to sound like a snob. It's not like you're like, such a snob. I am. I'm horribly you're a like snob. The I don't. Worst snob I, I, you tattoos know, <laughs> and your swoopy pink haircut <laughs> and that black halter top. I I honestly the can shoes. say this because you can end up some sleazy sober living spots where people are stealing from you. Yeah. They you can't trust the person that you're rooming with, and there is some really 
really deep. I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but there's some stuff going on in there that most people don't really want to know about. And I don't want to scare people from, you know, going yeah, they're to They're hardcore, living. but I mean, they, they have curfews and they do random urinary analysis tests. And if the community is good, it can be really supportive and you have to go to meetings and yeah. it can be a good thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a really good thing if you get a good sober living home yeah. with people that aren't corrupt. Let's just put it that way. So anyway, look, let's talk about Alcoholics Anonymous. What is your relationship with AA? I like how you're smiling at me because you already know what I'm going to say about this. Uh, yeah, I've already deposed you on this issue Listen, on a previous occasion. And I'm ready for this argument. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Let's get it. Get the gloves okay. are off. So, so I actually, I appreciate AA and NA. I'm going to put that in both, with both categories. She appreciates it, ladies I appreciate and it. Okay. I do. And I can also respect what they do for people, very much so. Actually, I still have a community of people that I've met through AA because I was forced into going to AA for my treatment program. Yeah. Or my program. At gunpoint. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you cannot not go if they're driving you there and driving you back to treatment. Of so. course. You can't yeah. not, not, not um, go. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I've met so many really good people, though. I can't, I can't really talk shit about it. I love what they do, and it's gotten people sober, mm -hmm. and it's worked for a lot of people. For me, I think the one thing that has always bugged me is listening to people talk about their God. And I don't want to sound like an asshole, but it's like you're I, I roll. Asshole, <laughs> I kind of am. You're such an though. asshole. I really kind of am. You're the worst, you're the worst flavor of <laughs> Listen, I grew up Catholic, okay? okay? And now here I am in my older years, you know, I'm looking back on it and I'm mm -hmm. thinking, you know, I'm not accepted by the Catholic Church. I can't right. walk into a Catholic Church and just sit down and mm -hmm. be accepted because mm -hmm. I'm married to a woman. Right. So most Catholics look at me and say, I'm so sorry, you're going to burn in hell, like kind of thing. And yeah. I can't, I can't appreciate that. Certainly. I like, I, I just, it bugs me. So that's kind of my background on that. When I go into AA and I hear people talking about God, I'm very spiritual in a way that I believe in Mother Earth. Mm -hmm. I believe in Gaia. I believe in the stuff I see. Um, I have a hard time following a Bible that was written by men. Mm -hmm. So I grew up as a Catholic in a Catholic family, which mm -hmm. ended up we left the church mm -hmm. because my parents didn't agree with a lot of things mm -hmm. in the whole Catholic church. So we ended up leaving that. And although I believe in a higher power, I'm very spiritual. I can't follow along with the whole Bible mm -hmm. scene. Mm -hmm. It's something I can't wrap my head around. And that's a long story. So mm -hmm. I won't even go into that. Mm -hmm. The thing with AA is that although it's a God of your understanding, I still have to listen to other people talk about God as in God in the sky with Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And and so the asshole I am, I, you know. You just don't want to be around it. I can't. It just, I can't. It bugs me. Yeah. Because I want to argue it and be like, how do you follow this blind, mm -hmm. faithful, like to this religion that mm -hmm. you, you're just, it's hearsay. It's mm -hmm. telephone okay. to me. So anyways, that has bugged me. But again, it's something that is going to actually, <laughs> alcoholism will kill me. And here I am bitching and moaning about the fact that someone else's God is pissing me off. I, I, like mm -hmm. that doesn't make any sense. Like mm -hmm. I should, I should put that aside and I totally get that. Mm -hmm. um, I just think that there might be or maybe should be a better option 
maybe take some of the AA with a little bit of smart recovery and combine it together, make it like a spiritual thing, but not quite God where people are talking about God. I don't know if that was, if there was something like that, I would mm -hmm. be. So smart recovery for those who don't know is um, basically a sort of the rational secular meetings. They're, they're like AA meetings where people kind of sit around and talk about finding solutions to everyday problems and they don't have a big book. They don't, they don't talk about higher power. Yeah. No 12 steps. I don't think. Right. Yeah. I guess what confounds me about your position, I understand it, and I and I do kind of get like ugh when people start talking about Jesus and God and all oh, this God. stuff. But it's just the sheer size of AA and the amount of you'll eventually you'll find plenty of people who are good and you can form a community around you who are not going to be Bible thumpers. There's thousands of them. AA is huge and it's free and it's everywhere. And it's like, why would you pass up that opportunity? It's like I don't I don't I understand where you're coming from and I also don't understand where you're coming from. Yeah, and I, I get it. This is the thing. I have a huge community mm -hmm. in the AA world and mm -hmm. NA. I I don't know what to say to okay. that. I just, I like at the end of the day, it's not that I'm not spiritual because I am. I'm very right. spiritual. I meditate daily, right. especially when I can, when my the alcoholism isn't getting in the way of it because obviously you can't 100% ground when you're yeah. anesthetizing your brain. What I tell people is that replace the word higher power with deeper power. Because they went to Carl Jung to figure this shit out. Right. And he said that you have to have a spiritual transformation, I believe is what he said, in order to get over your alcoholism. Because alcoholism is not, in my opinion, it's not cured. It's it's outgrown or it's you become more awake, more conscious. And the 12 steps are essentially a spiritual journey. And of course, there are many ways to have a spiritual journey, to have a spiritual experience. Um, you know, Jung said that increased consciousness was about connecting your ego or your conscious self to your unconscious self. And if you just take the word deeper, what's my deeper power? What's the deeper part of myself? Because there's no appreciable difference between the spiritual process of a Buddhist monk and a Catholic priest and an atheist who who finds solace by uh, out, out in her garden, mm -hmm. you know, digging in the earth. It's the same shit. Everybody is doing the same thing, but they're arguing about dogma. It's like, you know, the iota of difference. You've heard that phrase? Hmm. Like there's no iota of difference between this and this. You never heard of that? No. Well, it's an old phrase and it, it, it was this, there was this argument and iota is like, a, is a basically a dot. And, and there was a place in the Bible, I forget where, where they would argue about where this iota should go. Should it go here or here? And they got into horrible, or it was like the part of the church like split over this iota. You know, and it's That's like, big. come on, guys, it's just a fucking, <laughs> it's not that big a deal. So in AA, you find a lot of people who get really dogmatic and annoying. Yeah. You know, just like you do in the real fucking world. Just like, you know, that if you have a bad, you have a bad neighbor and you got a good neighbor. It's like, yeah. who gives a fuck? You know, why, why get. Well, try having my neighbor. Okay. Well, fuck your neighbor. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, that's just my argument. I don't want to get into it too deeply. No, um, I get it. Let's talk. Let's. I'm going to sort of wrap here, and we're going to talk a little bit about what's next for you. Are you going to try to take another swing at this sobriety thing? Are you just going to coast for a while? What's going on? What's going on? I don't know. I thought I'd wing it. Wing it. I'm just kidding. Okay. Obviously, hasn't worked for me. So. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not the that's not the thing. Yeah, no, I'm I'm kidding. Um, I. I don't know what I want to do. Um, I hate living like this. I do. When I wake up at 4.30 a.m. and think to myself, okay, that's it. No more alcohol. I'm not doing it. I don't care if I have a seizure or not. I'm not touching a goddamn drop of it anymore. Mm -hmm. And then 10 a.m. rolls around and I'm like thinking of all the excuses in the world of why I should. Mm -hmm. um, I'm having a really hard time stopping on my own yeah. 100% and 
I know it takes a community to help you. It does. You really do need support. I've gone from addiction to addiction to addiction. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's cocaine, benzos, or alcohol. Alcohol has been kind of my go-to. It's always the Mm -hmm. one that I end up back with. I would like to say that I want to go and try again to get sober. Um, But the pit of my stomach tells me that this is just my life and I'm going to eventually die from it. I I know that sounds super want-want and like depressing, but I have a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that I'm actually going to do anything different Mm -hmm. from what I actually do right now. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very hard to, especially with a community of people that drink and their life's engulfed in drinking as well being that my friends are family mm-hmm. and my family is friends kind of thing it's it's just yeah it's hard but i i mean i commend you for your bravery of saying that i mean that that takes a lot of uh, willpower to be able to get in front of the whole world and say yeah i'm not really sure i'm gonna make it here well, i am in this thing and i want to and i don't know what to do yeah i mean not every i don't think every story has a happy ending well i'm not saying that your ending isn't going to be happy but i do think you're speaking for millions of people in mm-hmm. your position What would you say to people who are struggling as you are? Um, I would say don't give up. And if you're trying to get sober for the first time, reach out for help to whoever you feel most comfortable with. Open that door just a little bit just to say, hey, I I need help. Just so that it's it's a start. It's a start. It's, Mm -hmm. It's to start something that could possibly help save your life. Don't be afraid to do that. And if you're someone that's like me where you're a chronic relapser, I guess that's how it would be seen from the professional side of the world. Don't give up on yourself and just keep trying. What's the worst that can happen of you keep trying Mm -hmm. to get sober? You know, what one day maybe you actually might get sober. So do you think you might get sober someday? Um I think it's going to have to take a really big shift for me. Something big. Something big. Because so far, me just trying to do it on my own and wanting to do it, even the fact that I I spit up blood, and I'm still not. Yeah. I'm not getting sober off I, that. Would that to me? I would have said a couple of years ago mm-hmm. before that happened. I would have said, oh, if I was doing that, I would give it up immediately. But it didn't. Well, you once told me, and this is a bit edgy but if you were pregnant you'd have no problem not drinking oh because that's another human life and i would never put a human life in in danger mm-hmm. like but what i about your own human life my life's different is it yeah I think, to me it is and i'm i guess my position is that i i think that it's possible that your your salvation in this matter lies in bringing those two those two ideas together I mean, it's possible, but there's been a time when I didn't even want to live. So I think that's why I live the way I live. Do you not value yourself? Do you not see yourself as a precious human being? Um, I, I do see myself as a human being, but I just, and it's not that I don't appreciate life. It's mm-hmm. that when I'm going through a really rough time, like let's just say my anxiety, mm-hmm when it was a couple months ago when I couldn't breathe Mm -hmm. and I literally had to lay on the floor to like try to get myself together Mm -hmm. in those moments I think to myself I don't want to live there's no reason to live if you're living like that every day constantly right 
I always say like if anybody would live a day in my shoes on a bad day with anxiety like I have, I feel like it would be no questions asked. Okay. They'd be like, I'm done. Like I'm I not see. living like this. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's it sucks. And I, I do respect life and I do... I'm very spiritual in a way where I try to connect so hard and ground myself with when I meditate because I do try to meditate and I know that I'm not 100% perfect and I drink and so I can't 100% ground. But when I meditate and I pull myself in the moment, it makes me feel better and it makes me appreciate I'm actually living, I'm breathing, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm here. Mm -hmm. I had a chance to live. Mm -hmm. I took a breath when I was a baby. I'm here in this moment. 39 years later, and I was created for a reason. I'm here, and I can appreciate that. But it gets really dark when you have moments like. Yeah. And in lieu of all that, what would you say to family members or friends of, or communities that have someone suffering from alcoholism and maybe their perceptions around it? I would say I know it's extremely difficult to watch a loved one struggle. Um, I would say to be, um, to have empathy, not sympathy, Mm -hmm. because it's a huge difference when you're standing above someone in a deep hole, whereas you're down in the hole with them. And that's the only way I could explain how empathy and sympathy is. Mm -hmm. When someone feels alone and they're by themselves and they need someone there to comfort them, they want someone there with them Mm -hmm. in the shitstorm. Um, I would also say to educate yourself and search out what you can do to help someone properly instead of doing it on your own because there's a lot of times people uh, become codependent mm-hmm. and a parent especially can become codependent and they can do more harm than good mm-hmm. in doing that to okay. someone um, that they love. When they, what do you mean by codependent? Codependent meaning that they put the other person before their own well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and try to help them. They try to help them, meaning also in ways of like supporting their habits just mm-hmm. because they think that it might hurt them to take them off completely mm-hmm. in that moment. Maybe they support in a way of like, hey, let me, let me mediate your medication for I you. I see, right. Yeah, let me help you get sober for a few days. Yeah, I'll hold your pills for you and yeah. I'll give you a few here and there. That's like a good, that's yeah. that's like 100% codependent mm-hmm. um, because it shouldn't be on that person right. to do that. And also family members need to go to Al-Anon. Mm-hmm. And Al-Anon is like AA, but it's it's meetings that talk about how you can't control the, the addict. It's not your responsibility. Yeah. All right, well, I think we're done. Just want to make sure you're okay. That you that you felt this was a thorough interview, and you feel like you said what you needed to say. I'm gonna say that it's as much as I could say in mm-hmm. the amount of time that we had. All right. Well, you're a fucking bruiser, and uh, I look forward to your continued fight against all of this. Well, let's see. All righty. <laughs> Take care. Thank you for listening. As always pertinent information stemming from this podcast will appear in the program notes. In addition, should you have any questions or wish to be a guest on my show, please contact me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com. That's B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-R-U-S-S-A-C-K at gmail. Thank you again. And remember, should you find that your plate is full? Well, consider getting a bigger plate.